Thanks for taking the time to listen to this NHS Employers podcast. For all the latest NHS HR workforce information, visit www.nhsemployers.org. Hello, I'm Paul Taylor and welcome to DudeCast episode 7 for July 2014. Now, if you're a regular listener to our podcast, you might be thinking, hang on, this sounds a bit different and you'd be correct. Normally, the team all chip in with updates on our work and what's been happening in the world of OD, but this time it is different. This is a super bumper special episode that brings you the highlights from our OD in the NHS conference that ran on July the 7th. OD in the NHS 2, the sequel, was, as you might have guessed from the title, our second annual NHS OD conference. 200 people from 132 NHS organisations joined myself and Karen Dumain for a day in London. It featured amazing speakers, all of whom you're going to hear from on this podcast. It's been so difficult to edit down eight hours of conference into an hour-long podcast, and we've had to cut out quite a lot. So during the episode, I'll come in and out and let you know what happened in the spaces in between. During this episode, you're going to hear from Professor Michael West, Tracy Gray and her opera singing daughter, Victoria. There's Dr. Pat Oakley, Chris Lake, Dean Royals and a lot more. Normally, our podcasts are a bit of a whirlwind of energy for 10 minutes and uh, it's a bit like a cold shower to wake you up. This one's a bit different. It's a long, luxurious bath for you to soak in. It's a bath full of inspiration and learning. So lay back and enjoy the highlights from OD in the NHS 2. Here's how it started. Good morning, everyone. Morning! Thank you. It's great to see you here today. My name is Paul Taylor from NHS Employers. And I'm Karen, Karen Dumais from the NHS Leadership Academy. And the theme of our conference today is Celebrate, Consolidate and Challenge. And as Paul said, it's the second conference um, hosted by NHS Employers and the National Leadership Academy. Hi, it's Paul again. Jumping in to let you know what happened next. We had 200 people introducing themselves to each other using Kate Granger's Hello, My Name Is, which was a fantastic way to break the ice and build some relationships in the room. After that, we showcased the work of our seven OD groups who've been working furiously on producing tools and resources around key areas of OD. This includes patient-centred OD, culture change, capability, influence, diagnostics, talent and systems. Each of the groups showcased their wares in the DoOD marketplace, and then we launched a brand new resource calling Doing OD in the NHS, Volume 1, which is now available for everyone on our website, www.nhsemployers.org. Thank you so much to all of the groups for their amazing work. Uh, it's a great document, and I'd encourage you to download it now. So back to the show, our first speaker of the day was the marvellous Professor Michael West, who came to talk about the role of OD practitioners in changing culture. Here's some of the highlights of Michael's session. Thank you, thank you very much indeed. Um, it's just such a privilege to um, have time here with you this morning and to um, hopefully influence your thinking about how we create cultures that really deliver high quality, continually improving and compassionate care in the health service. And I think that the real challenge for OD 
is always to be thinking about how can we nurture the culture of our organizations so that they will sustainably deliver, continually improving, and high quality and compassionate care. And I think that's the core purpose of OD and the NHS, and that whatever we do should be focused on nurturing those cultures. And I think that every interaction by every leader, everyone in this room, every interaction every day by every leader shapes the culture of the organizations that make up the National Health Service in England. For the last um, four or five years, I've been involved in a research study and continuing reverberations from the, this research study with the most amazing team of research. And it was a study of the extent to which there are cultures of high quality care across the English NHS. And it involved the research team spending 650 hours sitting in A&E units and wards and in primary care reception areas to watch what went on. What's the way that we do things around here? What are the cultures like within the English NHS? And what we saw, most perhaps prosaically, was that there were bright spots and dark spots across the system. And even within the bright spots, we saw dark spots. Even within the trusts where things were done well, there were dark spots. And even within the organizations that weren't functioning well, there were some areas that were really beacons of good practice and high-quality care. And the challenge for us in OD in the NHS is to raise the level of illumination overall within the system and to reduce that variability. That's why it seems to be the only way that we can do that is to focus on the cultures of the organizations. I guess there are two challenges then for OD, well, maybe three. The basic challenges, uh, I'm, I would suggest to you, is looking at everything that, that we as OD practitioners do and saying, is this making a positive and significant difference to the culture? And the second is, what, what, is it, what kind of culture do we want to nurture? What's the, what's the, what are the characteristics of this culture? And the third challenge is, it's all very well to talk about changing culture. But how do we do that? Are we scratching just around the edges of culture, or are we really transforming the culture? So if we really want to make a difference to culture, what we have to do is to change the way that leaders behave. If we want those dark spots to become bright spots, we have to change the way that leaders behave. What are we doing as an OD community to ensure that that compelling strategic narrative that inspires the staff and ensures that they're focused on what's important is being developed across our organizations. Are we just scratching around the edges or are we making that happen? We, we need to ensure that leaders at every level of the organization are skilled in working with their teams and with their staff to set clear challenging objectives at the level of the team, at the level of the directorate, at the level of the board within the organization. The, the, the principles of objective setting are, are straightforward. The practice is more difficult. What are we doing as an OD community to ensure that there is that clear objective setting at every level? If we want staff to behave towards patients with respect and care and concern and compassion, then our leaders have to behave towards staff with respect and care and concern and compassion. So if we want staff to be uh, compassionate and attentive, empathic in taking, and taking intelligent action in helping patients, then we must be compassionate towards staff. 
the measure of staff engagement in the staff survey trumps all others as a predictor of outcomes, as you can see here. In this, the, the example here is in the acute sector, CQC ratings of quality of service, financial performance, and so on, predicted by engagement. And it's the same in the ambulance sector, in, in mental health um, trusts also. So engagement's really important. And we know some of the factors that predict the overall engagement level in the NHS. It's leadership, it's supervisors' support. We can change that. We can change the way leaders behave. It's ensuring people, people's jobs are well-designed and they have clear objectives. But the, for me, the most important message about you know, what we need to focus on, if there was, you know, sometimes people, people ask us on the basis of our research, yeah, but what's the one thing that you would really, you know, try and change if you could about NHS cultures? Well, I do have an answer. And it's a really simple one. And it is, we have to make these cultures positive. Emotions are really important to us human beings. It's kind of the fundamental issue. It's, you know, after survival, actually it's about, it's about survival. Positive emotions are really important. We need to feel optimistic. We need to feel that we're in a cohesive community. We need to feel a sense of efficacy. When we feel those things, we are more creative, we're more empathic, we're more compassionate, we are more altruistic, we make decisions better. If you, if you induce positive affect in a medic, she will make better diagnoses. It's as simple as that. If you induce positive affect in a nurse, she or he will be more compassionate in their treatment of patients. What are we doing as an OD community to ensure that we are transforming, changing the hue of cultures in the NHS to be positive? Remember what I said at the beginning. There are bright spots and dark spots out there everywhere. What are we doing as an OD community to really increase the level of illumination substantially and reduce substantially the amount of variation in the illumination. What I want to conclude by saying is that the way that we achieve it, is, achieve it, I believe, is by creating collective leadership in our organizations. We need to move away from the hierarchical top-down notion of leadership to see leadership as being a responsibility of all, by all and together with all. And that's absolutely vital to achieving the kinds of cultures that are focused on continually improving high-quality, compassionate care. We've produced two documents in the King's Fund. One is around the, the logic of the collective leadership strategy, and the other is around how to go about developing a collective leadership strategy. They're downloadable free from the King's Fund website. It's amazing what goes on in NHS organizations, and we need leadership cultures that foster that brightness and reduce the level of variability. That's the challenge for the OD community. Thank you very much for the time today. That was the fantastic Michael West with some great challenges for us all. To end that session, our colleague Carolyn Norgate from the OD team at Guys and St Thomas's took the room through an exercise to make sense of their own context and what they would need to do back in their organisations. Thank you very much to Carolyn for that. It was then time for a break over some lunch and we wanted to start the afternoon with something really powerful. Earlier this year, we were lucky to have a blog written for us by Mian Chung Judge called Find Your Voice. It really seemed to resonate with a number of people in our community. 
So the afternoon started with a session on the various ways to find and use your voice. The next person you'll hear is Karen, reading some of Mian's blog, followed by Steve Keyes from Leeds Community Healthcare Trust, who led a fantastic hour on voice. Here's Karen. The time has come for all of us either to begin making our voice heard or to scale the impact of our voice up a couple of notches. To ensure the organisation you work in will continuously move towards great health and effectiveness. If you haven't read that blog, it's a really powerful blog and it's worth having a look. It's on the DOD resources. So our session for the next hour is we're going to really explore how we find our voice as OD practitioners in such a noisy and often complex system. And I'm really delighted to be joined on stage, first of all, by Tracy Gray, who's head of OD from Doncaster Royal. Thank you for that introduction, and it's a real pleasure to be here. I'm going to share with you for the next few minutes my journey into finding my voice in what I now know as OD. I actually started fulfilling what had been a dream as a child to be a nurse. I wanted to be a nurse when I was about four, and that was because I watched angels on telly. I loved the hats and I loved the capes. So that was my driving force, but it was more than that. I wanted to give back. And every time I worked in a particular area, I had this question that kept coming up. How is it people behave the way they do? And what is it about this culture in the NHS that people seem to get away with poor behaviour? And it was a question that kept burning. It's Paul again. I'm going to pause here because Tracy told a very powerful story about her own journey and the times when her voice had been silenced. Some of it was quite personal stuff, which we thought was absolutely right for the conference, but it doesn't seem fair to put it out there for the whole world to listen to. So we're going to skip forward now to a point where Tracy starts to see that all is not well in the organisation that she's in. I worked in a really innovative team, a team that supported each other and were high performing. Then it got to the point where I underwent organisational change in a service that it was all done to us. At this time in my career, my little people had turned into very big people and they remained my driving force. My daughter at the time was in her third year of her degree at a very prestigious institution. She'd been through a horrendous 12 months. I had a phone call off her. Mum, I'm really feeling in a bad place. I know what would make me feel better. I need some mum and daughter time. Now, at this point in the story, Tracy has a dilemma. Her daughter needs her, but the day she wants to meet up is the day that Tracy has been booked to attend a course, which ultimately could change her future. Tracy decided that she had to put herself first for once and she went on the course and it really transformed how she dealt with stuff at work and it led to her being offered some amazing roles and great opportunities. We rejoin the story now at a point where Tracy is in a great organisation with a great boss doing great work. Here's Tracy. Just as I got to the evaluation stage I had a new boss and it was incredible because I could really communicate well with her. My first meeting, she said, Tracy, tell me, what is it that you're doing 
when you're the best version of you. And I told her about what I've been doing with this particular ward. And she listened. And she said, oh, so you're not just education. She said, you do OD. And I went, what's OD? She then helped me to evaluate the work we'd done. We reduced sickness and absence. The figures after six months reduced from 378 days lost to stress to 34. We had a team who believed in themselves again. We were really lucky. We won two national awards last year for that work. I found my voice in that organisation. The patient that was thirsty, who lost his, got it back. But that's all I want to say about me, because I'd actually like to really introduce you now to the inspiration, my driving force, the person that has made me continually work on finding my voice, my daughter, Victoria. Okay, so let me just describe what's happening here to you. Victoria has walked in from the back of the room. She's wearing this striking red dress and dazzling everyone with her voice. I don't think anyone expected it. Victoria makes her way through the audience and onto the stage, and she then talks about her own experiences of training to be a singer and how at various times her voice was silenced by others. It's an amazing story. Again, it's quite a personal one, so we're not going to put it out here on the podcast. But Victoria ends by asking for a bit of audience participation. I don't know if you'll agree, but at the beginning, I feel like something was missing. And I think that something was all of you. You see, that piece needs a chorus of 200 voices. <laughs> and I would love if you will accept for you all to be those voices. My gosh, are you actually professional? <laughs> you lied to me. <laughs> that was gorgeous. When we all do find our voices as an OD community, we can actually start to change the culture within those organisations that we're working in. By doing that, 
Actually, our staff start to find their voices and then patients ultimately find theirs. Tracy then hands over to John Walsh from Leeds Community Trust. And John talks about his work with service users and the challenge of hearing the voices of some of the most vulnerable people in society. After John, you'll hear Steve Keyes again. And Steve summarises the session with a model of finding your voice, which he called opera. Yeah, my name is John Walsh and I work as part of Leeds Community Healthcare. I work at a service called York Street Health Practice. I run a service that works with people who are homeless and in the asylum system. For the last 20 years of my life, I've spent the time walking and working the streets of Leeds, trying to engage with people who are some of the most marginalised and vulnerable of our citizens. So I was a very early convert, I think, to that OD call. And I said that I'd come along today, I was very kindly invited to say something about how can we impact cultures? How can we change cultural patterns? Every time you act, you create culture. If you think of leadership, we have leaders who say, thank you, well done. That's an amazing piece of work you've done. And you know the mean it. We have other leaders who never say that. Both those leaders are creating forms of culture. We all, I'm sure, know leaders who walk the walk, go the extra mile, are also there for their staff. Even in personal matters, are there alongside their staff. We don't have to look far to find these people. These people walk among us. Where I work, at least community healthcare, there's loads of them, loads of them. And I can't help saying these words without thinking of the person who's my own mentor, who's Yvonne Coggle from the Leadership Academy, who's somebody who continually gives to others to try to support their development and growth. And that says something about the incredible potency, possibility and power we all hold in our hands every day. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist who was imprisoned in four of the concentration camps during the Second World War, including Auschwitz. His mother, father, wife and sister all perished in those camps. One of the things he describes is in Auschwitz, how in this awful place, there was a small group of men and women who went around showing love, care and compassion to others. At Auschwitz, every day you received a little bit of soup and a little bit of bread. These people would share it. They would reach out to others. And it's amazing in this dark, cold place where all compassion had been abandoned and abolished, These people were like living human candles, giving off love and warmth and compassion. The one thing they could not take away from this little group was their choice to be who and what they were. And I think it's awesome that in the dark dark night of Auschwitz, these people shone. Their radiance and their presence shone. And it still shines right down to us today. And I think there's a really important organisational lesson for us all in this. It shows that in the very worst, we can choose to be the best. And that's what each and every one of us in this room is called to do. And right across this service, it's the same. That's what we're called to do. That's the benchmark and that's the standard. And I do hope we all, in our own ways, make it. Thank you. So the first one is about open to possibilities. And I think this is really important as OD practitioners that Uh, We do carry on being very curious about our world around us and curious about each other. Uh, And that actually we also learn from those experiences as well. I think that's that's dead important. The other thing for me is about often 
feels quite a lonely place sometimes being an OD practitioner. And I think what's key in it is to have some persistence and determination to succeed. Because often you're faced with all sorts of challenges and adversity, but I think it's that important to kind of carry on and be persistent. Um, Michael talked this morning about positive emotion, and I think that's absolutely right. And Victoria talked about it as well. So having positive emotion and passion, you have to have passion in what it is that you do. If you're not motivated and don't have that passion, how can you possibly succeed? It's really important. Um, receiving and giving feedback. I think that we need to be open about receiving feedback, asking for feedback. When was the last time you asked for feedback from colleagues that you worked with? It's really important. And then the last one is about awareness and the, and the impact of self and others. So this is understanding your own preferences for things, for doing work, the impact your own style has on. Because we tend to just to kind of go off and to do stuff, but to what extent does your own style have an effect on the way in which you work and your approach as well? And also the last bit about that is to what extent do you have impact in the organization that you work in? And to what extent do you have the right relationships in the organization that you're working in to make that impact work? The next part of our day changed gears again. And brace yourself, because here comes the science part. We invited Dr. Pat Oakley to speak at our conference because she has a wealth of technical and academic experience in the field of OD, as well as work across the NHS more generally. Pat delivered an incredible session, which was detailed. Uh, some of it was very visual. So we've edited it here to cover some of the highlights. But you can also download the slides from Pat's session and all our other speakers from our website. Website. We asked Pat to talk about navigating politics, professional groups and complexity. She did a stunning job. Here's the highlights from Pat Oakley. Uh, so what I'm going to do is just call on about 30, 40 years worth of experience of basically being in the coal hole of filthy politics, being beaten up left, right and centre, shouted at. And actually, the key thing for us is working out how to get out of that hole and actually move things on. So my focus, in contrast to uh, earlier sessions, a little bit more weighty in terms of organizational politics. Organizational development is a long-term game. And you've actually got to plot a course that no one wants to hear about, which is what are you going to do over three, five, and ten years? If you want to get really sustained, deep cultural change uh, working through the politics. But the big OD agenda, the standing order you, you've been given uh, by the state, uh, by uh, Bruce Keogh, the medical director, is you've got to deliver seven-day services and some joined-up community-based care. That is the OD agenda. And you've got to focus your mind on that because actually there just isn't enough resource and money in OD. So we have to make what we've got fit as best we can to mobilize on this, the state's agenda, which is ultimately about better patient care. So we need to unpack very quickly the protagonists in this. That's the professional staff. And critically, as DiMaggio and Powell would describe them, the isomorphic forces, those that actually, no matter what you do in your organization, actually organizations standing off 
are so powerful and out with your control that they can erode the authority that you may bring to bear in your own organization of changes. So we'll have to look at who has purchase on the uh, royal colleges, the professional bodies, the trade unions, the councils, etc. These are bodies of the state and therefore an OD practitioner in Blackpool isn't going to have much purchase on that. So we have to work out what is the best way to work within that binding constraint. The external forces, or those of you that have done courses in this, this is DiMaggio and Powell's isomorphic force. But it's critical that you need to understand what is your theoretical underpinning, what is your belief structure in how you make your approach. And I, over many years, I've done so many reviews of OD things that have gone wrong, you know, because I'm one of those that comes in afterwards and does the sweeping up and sorting out. And actually, I'm going to just reflect on my experience of being in that OD supermarket, and I'm going to suggest you're all banned from going in there until you have got a proper license to enter with state's money and spend it wisely. Okay, and actually, because um, Paul is like he is, uh, very structured in his thinking, and actually I've got a nice little chart for you at the end, which I drew on Tishi's work, TCP, Technical, Cultural and Political Change. You've got to do all three, by the way, uh, or else don't bother. And I've put it together in a little dashboard, and I've written basically five key questions in each of the technical, cultural, and political dimensions. You score yourself one to 20 in each, put them on the clock. If you're over 50 on all three clocks, you've got a fighting chance. If you're under, don't bother. You're wasting money. Okay? Okay, focus now, cultural and political. And the first thing is, what is it that Bruce wants of us? Anyway, this, I believe, is the OD agenda. First thing is, delivering seven-day services, you cannot have a national template. I think you know this. You can't have a national template that says, dear commissioner, this is what it looks like, commission like this. Okay, every community is so special and different, you have to tailor it. So therefore, we've got to look at, so each of you, in terms of your local organizations, have to look at what is your community. So if you're in Sheffield, down by the station there, that is what your community looks like. It's all high-rise. If you're in Harrow, in the suburbs, that is rows and rows of neat houses, and that's what your community looks like. Very ordered. The GP services for those two, completely different. If you're in Hampshire, in the little villages, fabulous, nice roses, all of that, but all very isolated, all spread about. If you're where I am, central London, King's, across the road, my college, where I teach, that's our college. We've got a community of 25,000 students, all smoking on the street, having coffee. It's their lounge, because they're not allowed to smoke indoors. Interesting. So they're all out there. Um, <laughs> smoking. Um, critically, you've got to work out what's your community. What does it need from seven-day services? And these are the five key areas that make a critical difference, first range. It is, we've got to have good social care services, some are good in some parts of the country, others not. Therefore, is part of your seven-day services agenda to do multi-agency cross-organizational working? We know hospice, hospital at home, brilliant. It's a money problem. The model's fine, you just need to pour money at it. We know the Community Pharmacy Medicines Optimization Service works very well, very good pilots, it's a money problem. 
support through from the commissioners. Different agenda. This one, very complicated. GP surgery is out of hours. It's different in different parts of the country. Is that part of your community-based, multi-agency approach to OD? You have to work that out. It's just different in different parts of the country. If you're in certain parts like Shropshire, Herefordshire, um, Cornwall, you've got a lot of small two one-man bands, etc. That is very different when you're working with a health centre that's got 15 principles. So you've got to map through what is the ask of the OD agenda if we want to have this joined-up community-based care. So those OD practitioners and, uh, practitioners, and I guess there's only one or two per community organisation, terribly threadbare. Actually, the generation of this um, agenda and actually what you're going to do about it is very, very big work. So it's likely you're going to have to join up with other organisations. Now, this is what's going to be the big development and it's basically like the Corby Centre. So you can get on your own computers there, type up Corby Centre and you can have a look what the GPs are doing there. Very, very innovative. But up in Northumbria, the Trust is developing these in partnership with the GPs. But this is some sort of local care service, which is an integration of those community-based services, GPs, community pharmacy, community nursing, the hospice, Marie Curie, Mark Mellon, social care, actually in some sort of construct which I called a local hospital, but actually I was told to take that out, hospital. It's a local care service, and uh, a rather nice model you can see is in Corby. So this is the great multi-agency OD agenda, and if you want seven-day services, sure, you can fix up some stuff in your A&E, but actually all you do is widen up the door so it silts up faster because you've got to get people out the back door and keep them in the community well. And that's the guts of the seven-day services. So seven-day services is not an acute service issue. It is an all-system approach. And therefore, adequately, I think, describes and sets for us our complex multi-agency OD agenda understanding order for delivering seven-day services. Well, let's get into the guts of this. Uh, so my thesis here is it's complex, it's multi-agency, and if you want to deliver seven-day services, you're going to have to do a whole system, or else you just silt up your hospital faster. And that's not a good investment of the state. So, we have to have an understanding of the role of external forces that control our OD agenda and professional staff values and behaviours because actually your organisation employs people but actually the inculcation of values and the reinforcement of those values actually comes through those professional bodies, their sort of, um, if you like, the mothership uh, that we need to work with. But the point for us here is that we have to work with the in and out group dynamics, okay? You can't overwrite this, you must go into the heart of this if you are serious about the cultural and political dimensions of change. So what this is calling for is a system, development of a systematic fabric of learning. So the organisation is a learning organisation underpinned correctly with data, reflective practice cycles and actually peer review and pressure to change. So if we just call on Tishi, 
the technical aspects of change are mostly okay because in the main we send people on Prince methodology courses, people have actually been for many years practiced about doing sort of work programs, mapping them out on time scales and actually getting the sort of technical components right. Cultural change is often seen as too difficult, too time-consuming, too long-winded, and sometimes I think it doesn't appear muscular enough to chief execs and boards who basically are quite orientated, and this is a cultural development issue too, uh, in terms of the finances, the metrics of the organization, and the basically quite hard-edged decisions that boards must take. But And this looks like, oh, it's the sweet girls up from OD doing all that stuff about learning. And actually, yes, it's one up from a seance. And we're all going to hold hands and sort of say, how do we feel? Uh, yes, are we feeling comfortable? No, we're not. Well, should we talk about it? The board will not compute this. So, the cultural change, it just doesn't have a lot of hard currency at the moment, so we've got to work on that. What matters and how you add value is how do you work in the backstage, because none of this will get you any change. Let me tell you, honestly, after 40 years of being beat up real bad, let me tell you, none of this works. But it's a farrago we go through, and it's part of a front stage player. So you basically have to be, as an OD practitioner, correct in your alignment of your approach to the problem in hand, and all of you have got to be able to basically work in the front stage. Just want to, uh, last couple of moments, spend time in the OD supermarket. It's got three aisles. The first aisle is basically what is the research? Because we're all after evidence-based. Most people who are in OD are not experienced enough to read the research and use it. So what happens is you pay a shaft of money for a fabulous academic report. And let me tell you, I've written loads. It's a fantastic commission to get because you sit in a library, review all the literature, and write a nice essay, basically. You can go and ask some sort of specialist to write you an essay, basically. Key thing is, do not burn big money here because basically you won't be able to read most of it and actually it is not a vehicle for change. But it is useful sometimes when you're creating justification for argument in the front stage. Okay? Therefore, you want it short. No one in the front stage wants 300 pages of this stuff. OD research into practice. Now here we're buying big services, so diagnostic assessment services, developing plans, design, training, education, development pathways, design, training, education, support tools, case study writers, generic programs, design, evaluation, project management schemes. You've all been in that aisle and you've all bought people and you know people who do stuff like that and indeed Pricewaterhouse, Deloitte, all of those very big players in this domain and you can ring them up and say, you know, can you do this? And they can basically put together a package for you and you can buy that. Key thing here is you need to be extremely focused on what you're spending state's money on because, again, the brief is often a bit broad. So, therefore, the person selling you the goods basically uh, can sell you anything. Um, and then... OD specialist project managers, specialist project managers, 
high-end facilitators. These are sorts of people who can come in and facilitate a board or facilitate a group of surgeons or basically a deanery that's gone wrong, that sort of thing. That's not your average facilitator, but be able to handle dynamics. Specialist tutors, educators who deliver specific programs, and then these who are worth a mint. These are the Red Adairs. You know who Red Adair is? And Boots Handsome? These are the Texas oil fighters that wherever there's an oil fire, or a very dangerous situation anywhere in the world, you ring Boots Handsome or Red Adair and out they go and they take their team and they cap oil wells. That could be their last day on this earth and you pay for that and they are rare. Just like in organizations where we've got basically very specialized people who are firefighters who can go in on a runaway and try and arbitrate and reconcile, this is big bust up stuff, dysfunctional teams will basically close it down. Okay, so you're allowed in here, but you've got to be very, very careful about what you spend. Wasn't that wonderful? As I mentioned, all of Pat's slides are on our website, which is www.nhsemployers.org slash OD. Pat's session was followed by some work in groups that was led by our colleague Sarah Akhtar from Chesterfield. Thank you, Sarah, for that. And then we had a big conversation in the room about how organisations can face their OD challenges ahead. That took us into our final session of the day. We had planned to hear first from Karen Linus, the Deputy Managing Director of the NHS Leadership Academy, but very sadly Karen was unwell on the way to the conference and so she couldn't be with us. Thankfully we had Chris Lake and he very kindly agreed to step in at the last minute. Here's Karen Dumain introducing Chris. So I'd really like you to welcome to the stage um, Chris Lake. So I often uh, hang around doctors and nurses and managers and other clinicians around, around the health sector and have, try and have conversations about their leadership practice, about what's it like to be on the receiving end of you. Just under a year ago, my daughter was uh, diagnosed with a brain tumour. Um, it unravelled over the course of about three days from a, uh, an appointment with uh, um, the optician who, who saw some slightly enlarged optical nerves, through to three days later being um, admitted into King's and having some fabulous surgery to remove what was a polycytic astrocytoma. Anybody else know what that means? I hope you never do. Some of you will. The care that she got in two hospitals, both in Brighton and in King's, was absolutely fabulous. But it's not just the clever neurosurgery that I was uh, impressed with. It was the... I couldn't help whilst sitting on my um, uh, fold-down bed, looking around the system that was at play in King's or the system that was at play in the Royal Alex in, um, uh, in Brighton, and ask myself the question, what's going on behind these service givers? What's going on behind the people that are offering care that's bringing them to my uh, bedside, to my daughter's care, it, with, with such um, uh, motivation, with such compassion. About three months later, October half term, we were meant to be going out away again. We didn't, because I spent another week sat next to my mum as she died 
in my sister's hospital. My sister's a matron. And I couldn't help but at that time, again, sitting on a different fold-down bed, but look at the weird juxtaposition of the fabulous care that my mum was getting as uh, nurse after nurse and doctor after doctor um, would arrive in the room and gently call her name. Her name was Nesta just before they walked up to her and touched her in any way. At the same time as I was sitting on this fold-down bed in this particular hospital, I picked up the local paper, and the headline was that this particular trust had just been thrust into special measures. But the people that were coming into the, into the room, into the side room with me and my mum, they sort of cared about that. But what they really cared about was the delivery of human compassion to people in their deepest, darkest hour of need. So let's change gear a bit, shall we? Um, so as I was sitting there in these two occasions, looking at these people, giving fabulous care, I wondered, what's behind all of this? Where does my, as head of professional development at the NHS Leadership Academy, the team that I lead and the people that I work with, what can we do to really help people deliver the care and the expertise that they need to give? You heard a bit earlier on from the fabulous Pat Oakley that you could spend lots and lots of money uh, in, the, in the very, very expensive OD supermarket. You, indeed, you could. Um, you heard a challenge from Michael West, at least I received it as a challenge, that are we really just scratching around the edges of OD? I think in many places he might be right. But um, I think there are loads of things that you can do, that we can do together, that aren't expensive and don't sit in the very expensive OD supermarket. Um, at the Academy, we've got the um, uh, healthcare leadership model. Those of you who've seen it, um, great. Those of you who haven't seen it, go look at it on the website. The, the, the self-assessment, uh, the online self-assessment is free of charge. It's been up and running for a month and it's getting great feedback. The 360-degree feedback is there. There's um, the talent hub will go live, talent management hub will go live in about a week with a whole load of talent conversation guides and talent tools and that sort of thing. There's healthy board guidance. There's the professional leadership programs. Executive Fast Track, Top Leaders, Nobev, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, Mary Seacole, Edward Jenner, Frontline, Ready Now, The Grad Scheme, The Intersect Program, and Leading for Change, and more. There's your local leadership academies um, and the networks that they're running, the range of offers that they've got, the communities of practice for your continuing professional development. There's the OD network that we've been talking about today. There's NHS employers and all that they have to offer. There's Do OD. There's lots of resources online from places like Ashridge OD, and there's everybody within this room. So my um, challenge to you and my entreaty to you is, um, if you have to, go and spend a million pounds at the OD supermarket. Instead, let's just work together, put OD right at the top of the agenda, at the heart and soul of the board, and deliver fabulous organisations that really value the people that work in them so that they can deliver the care that my family and that your family really deserve. We're almost at the end of the day. Our final speaker of the day was Dean Royals, Chief Executive of NHS Employers. And we asked Dean to close the conference and bring it to a rousing finish. Um, unfortunately, we got off to a bit of a sad start because that morning, Dean had just announced that he was going to be leaving NHS Employers. So I had the job of holding it together, welcoming him on stage without crying. But we were delighted to have a world-exclusive first appearance from Dean since his announcement. Here's Dean. 
And uh, thank you, Paul. It's, uh, it's just so very typical of Paul that uh, when I uh, came in this morning, he said, can I mention that you're uh, leaving? Because I want to say that uh, there's an exclusive, that I can be the first people, first person, the first group to have spoken uh, to you after I've announced that I'm leaving. So it's, it's exclusive in that regard. But uh, uh, thank you very much. I've had a fantastic time at NHS Employers over almost uh, four years, uh, but really looking forward to uh, going to uh, Leeds Teaching Hospitals, where I'll be the, the director of HR. So uh, still a few months at NHS Employers. And uh, I feel that one of those... Um, and mixed things today. I, uh, disappointment at leaving NHS employers and huge excitement about going to uh, Leeds. But I do feel as I've been around peg in a round hole at NHS employers, and that's thanks to uh, people like Paul and other people that work at NHS employers that have just made my job uh, so easy. So uh, thank you, Paul. Uh, but last year when I uh, came here, I came to uh, close down. And for those of you that were here will uh, recall perhaps that I said I wanted to leave you with four words. Uh, four words. They were meaning, hope, belonging, br and growth. And I'll, I'll recap them slightly. Uh, this year, as part of it, and because it's a time of austerity and cuts, I'm hoping to leave you with one word. Okay, so from four words last year uh, to one word uh, this year. But one of the things I, I ended on uh, last year was uh, saying, what is it that we all want from work? What is it that we all want, whoever we are? And I think it's four things, meaning, hope, belonging, and growth. So all of us, in the job of work that we do, want to feel as though we've got meaning. Uh, we want to feel as though we're making a contribution somehow in the NHS to patient care, that we can see that sort of connection uh, through. And if we've got well-designed jobs, we'll have that sort of sense of meaning. And one of my things for uh, HR and OD practitioners in the, the room is uh, when people leave, I don't think we put as much effort as we perhaps should do into that job design stage. It's probably chapter two in the HROD textbook, and we sort of pass it by as something that involves writing a job description. But giving people meaning through the job that they do is a fantastic thing, something I've had in spades, by the way, at uh, NHS employers. Uh, meaning, hope, uh, all of us, I think, whatever our set of circumstances, uh, want to hope that uh, next week is going to be better than this week. However great this week has been, you hope it's going to be better, don't you? Uh, that next year is going to be better than it has been uh, this year. And these are particularly tough times, I think, uh, in the NHS. And I think it's our job to bring hope into organisations. Uh, then belonging. Uh, all of us, I think, we're, we're social uh, beings, we're social animals, and we have to have a sense of belonging with a, with a group of people. So whether that's the team that we're working with, the section or the department, the organization or the, the trust itself, uh, we have to have that sort of sense of uh, belonging. And we've got a, an opportunity to create a sense of belonging uh, in people. Because again, if we've got that meaning and hope and belonging, then we have satisfying uh, work. And then the final uh, thing I said uh, at the end of last year was that we all need growth. Uh, we all need to feel as though we're growing in our understanding of the job of work that we do, that we've developed, that we're doing it better than we were doing it the previous week or the uh, previous year. Uh, but I think that there's one word uh, for this year, uh, one word, and that word is, is compassion. Uh, so compassion, it's, uh, it's one of those words, its nearest neighbor is probably love. It's uh, a word that we want to hear when those around us are receiving care. Uh, it's a word, I think, that demands an emotional reaction when you hear it. And it's a word that's uh, been said in the NHS uh, more times than any other in the last year. Um, but we've got a problem because in repeating it, it nearly always came after a lack of. So a lack of compassion. Just one short sentence that's been used to sum up uh, the NHS. The NHS that we work in, 
the NHS that we are part of, if you've been here like me for 25 years, the NHS that I feel has I've helped build, that's the way that people see the NHS at the moment. And I know that doesn't tell the whole, the whole story, not by a long shot. Uh, but that sums up to me is, uh, if you like, our leadership challenge, the leadership challenge that we face, because that word compassion makes what we face this world's uh, biggest OD uh, challenge, compassion, because it means that every patient, that's a million patients every 36 hours, every patient should be getting that uh, high-quality, compassionate care, whether that's in a ward, in a clinic, in a surgery, journeying on an ambulance, in a GP practice, each and every time that we uh, see them. And that should be our high ambition and our high ideal that we want to uh, achieve. And I guess if we get it right, uh, then uh, will people be able to say uh, that HR fulfilled its role? Uh, you know, so will HR say that, uh, you know, that OD was there uh, lending radiance uh, to those that endured in the heat of that conflict? So that's our uh, job. Uh, can we bring that sort of hope uh, into uh, organizations? And I, I feel hopeful about that. Uh, I feel hopeful about that for one very good reason, uh, which is I genuinely believe that sort of quote about never underestimate the ability of a few people to change the world because it's the only thing that uh, ever did. And when I look out on this particular network, I am particularly hopeful. Uh, so I've been around in HR and OD for a long time now. And there has been lots of false starts, I think, of OD networks uh, coming together to try and network and, and meet and grow. There's been some great examples of it, but as far as I'm aware, this is the only OD network that I am aware of uh, that a year later isn't looking back on itself saying, what should we have done to have kept it more vibrant, but has actually grown and is looking forward to what can we do. So a year on, and I think that's a fantastic testament to the work that, that Paul and the DuoD team have done, that the work we've done with the Leadership Academy in terms of providing resources. We've had a fantastic opportunity, I think, using social media and social networks and virtual networks to be able to do that and share it. I came down on the train feeling part of the, uh, uh, the conference today because I was catching up on the opera singing that you'd done uh, earlier and the Michael West talk and the other sorts of things that you've been doing today, Steve Key's talking, even though I wasn't here People have been able to share in that experience. And wouldn't it be fantastic uh, that it's not only grown, but next year when we look at it, we start to see that exponential growth. In other words, that it doubles in size uh, each year. And I think that's a fantastic uh, opportunity and a fantastic uh, ambition uh, for us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was it. OD and the NHS 2 was over. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the highlights from the day. Karen and myself want to say a huge thank you again to everyone who was involved both behind the scenes and centre stage on the day. We're already thinking about OD and the NHS 3 for 2015 and how we can make it even bigger and better. In the meantime, remember to visit nhsemployers.org OD to download Doing OD and the NHS. As usual, you can tweet us at NHSE underscore DoOD. You can sign up for our monthly bulletin on our website. And we'll be back again in a few weeks with another episode of our podcast, where we'll be back to normal with the team bringing you news and updates. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>